last week, I shared with you about 200 things that Jesus has called in the Bible. And of all of those things, those earliest followers of Jesus drilled in to one central idea. And it's this. It's this. There we go. I believe in Jesus Christ. And we talked all about last week what it meant that Jesus is called the Christ. But then they chased it immediately with this. Well, where did that go? All right. All right, give me that whole first line and don't touch it ever again. All right, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Of all the things that you can say about Jesus, this is what they choose to say. I believe that Jesus is the Christ. I believe that he is God's only son. And I believe that he is our Lord. These are the load-bearing, weight-bearing ideas. Central to how Christians view Jesus and his earliest followers thought about him that are oftentimes far different than the way many other people think about him both back then and today. I think it might be odd as we dig into this to think of this as actually something that different. I'm going to put one more slide on the screen here. Just to show you how another ancient creed played with this term, the wording's a little bit different, but look what they say. Now, Lord is central. I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. All right? That's where it lays its territory. And I want to talk to you today about that back half, about that phrase, that Jesus is God's only Son and our Lord. I think many people, if they believe in God, tend to think of all humanity as being God's children. Apostle Paul certainly picks up on this. You can read about this in Acts chapter 17, where he's in Athens, and he's talking with pagans and those involved in the Greek philosophical systems, basically those who didn't share his same perspective on Jesus, those who didn't even know Jesus, and those without that Judaic root of who God is. And he quotes to them, sure, in your own mind, I can see what you're saying, that in some sense, we're all God's children. As your own poets will say, Paul would write. And yet, Jesus has a very different perspective. Jesus sees us as the children of the world. In fact, Jesus will go so far at times to even call people children of the devil. So that's cheery, you know? But Jesus, something different. There's a famous Bible passage, many of you might know it, and if you do, I invite you, just like you sang earlier, to say it along with me. John 3, 16. Familiar, right? Think about it as you say it today. For God so loved the world. Well, you guys just kept going. I was going to stop you at that only begotten son kind of thing. But some of you went only begotten son. Did some of you say it differently? Some of you may have said one and only son. If you look in modern translations, sometimes it will say his unique son. Jesus, when he said those words, was, I am the 
monogonase, the mono, the only, begotten, the only, born. God has one son, and it ain't me, and it ain't you either. From Jesus' perspective, the assumption that we are all God's children is a false one to begin with. God has one child. And that's what this is trying to tap. Now, in Jesus, we are invited into the family. But there is a difference, something qualitatively different and different between who Jesus is and how he stands in relation to God and how we do as well. Now, when these ancient Christians called Jesus God's son, when Jesus himself called himself God's son, he was clearly using a metaphor. God does not have sex. And if God even did, I don't know who he would have sex with. So Jesus is clearly not the biological son of God. And so the trick whenever you have a metaphor is to draw the right meaning out of it without taking everything it could possibly imply. Let me give you an example. Maybe some people invite you over and they're, they're having a party at their house and when you get there, they're going to have food and they've got a, a table buffet spread out and there's a guy standing up there and I mean, he's just going to town on this buffet, right? And you turn over to your wife and you're like, my gosh, that guy is such a pig. Now, would it be right for your, your wife to assume that what you meant is, wow, look at that wise and intelligent creature, as pigs are? Is your husband implying, man, that guy's got a small curly tail in his pants. I bet his intestines make great hot dogs. It would be an inappropriate use, would you agree, of the metaphor. It's not what's meant. What's meant is, man, the guy is just like eating everything in sight, you know, shoving his face and being a slob and making a mess. The same with Jesus is God's son. Because what it was never meant to imply is that somehow God created Jesus. That Jesus is somehow the offspring of God in the way that we think of sons being offspring. So what was intended? Well, three very different things. The first is this. When they called Jesus God's only son, it was meant to be a, here's the term, you're going to like this one, a filial relationship. Turn to your neighbor and just say filial relationship here today. <laughs> Didn't that just feel good? Maybe you should text that person you like and say, I would like to enter into a filial relationship with you. What it basically means is this. It's the duty that a child owes their parent. A filial relationship is the relational nature between a mother and a daughter, a father and a son, and when they call Jesus God's only son, they're saying there's something in this connection between the Father in heaven and Jesus the Christ that can be so closely resembled to what we see between a father and son that let's go with the language. Because when you see Jesus, he talks like the father. 
He acts like the father. He loves him like a father. He obeys him like a father. And he gives him the duty that a son owes a father. This is what's behind this phrase when he says he's God's only son. Are you with me? But it doesn't stop there. Because ancient Israel was also called God's son. In fact, it was called God's firstborn son. This is central to the entire Exodus story. You might remember that God is trying to bring Israel out of Egypt. And through a series of plagues and signs and wonders from heaven, he's trying to shake Pharaoh to let his people go. And it culminates in the 10th plague with God coming through the land of Egypt and doing what? Striking down all of Egypt's firstborn son. Because as Yahweh said through Moses, because of the oppression of my firstborn son, I will take your firstborn son. But it doesn't take long reading the Old Testament to see that Israel never lived up to the task. But Jesus, if you read the Gospels closely, does something interesting. He relives, he repeats, if you will, in himself the story of Israel. But does it right? Israel comes through the Jordan River and into the Promised Land. And immediately upon doing so, they go their own way. Jesus comes into the Jordan River and is baptized by God and the heavens open and a voice thunders from heaven saying, this is my son with whom I am pleased. Moses goes up on a mountain and gives the law. Jesus goes up on a mountain and gives the sermon on the... And step after step after step, you will see Jesus repeating what Israel did from temptation in the wilderness, not 40 years, but... 40 days, and it goes on and on and on. But where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. Where Israel broke that filial relationship, Jesus lived it perfectly. Jesus embodied Israel in himself, became the living sense of what Israel was meant to be, and through him invited people like you and me to be grafted into Israel But it doesn't stop there because they went even further that when we call Jesus God's only son, it's meant to describe some special kind of shared nature that they have, that the substance of what makes God is the substance of what makes Jesus too. You know, I have a stepmom and I have a stepdad and both of them have always treated me like I was their own. They welcomed me into the family. They loved me. They cared for me. They invested in me. But I don't share a genetic relationship with either of them. At some level, we are different. And so is true with God. God reaches out to you and treats you as his own. He loves you. He cares for you. He invests in you. He makes you a full-fledged member of the family. But there is something different about us. Would you agree? Something different about us as well from the nature and substance of who God is. I'm not Yahweh. 
and you're not either. But Jesus? Oh, Jesus, that's something different. He's God's son. Maybe not born of God, but same material of God, same genetics of God, same DNA of God, if you would allow me to use that kind of analogy. There is something ultimately different and special about him. And so from the beginning, the gospels would proclaim, the apostles would preach, and the creeds would state, I believe in Jesus, the Christ, God's only son. But it doesn't stop there. Because not only is he the Christ, not only is he God's only son, he's also our Lord. There's this amazing passage in Romans chapter 10 where all of these ideas come swelling together. And here's what it says. Let me pop it up here for you today. Here's what it says. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Think about that for a minute. There is so, something so central to identifying Jesus as Lord, to calling him Lord, to confessing him as Lord, that salvation itself is intertwined with it. Of all the things that this could have said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your brother, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your savior, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your friend, but it doesn't go that way. No, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What's going on? I'm going to suggest to you three things. The first is this, that when we call Jesus our Lord, we're saying, you're a master. You're our ruler. I acknowledge you as one in charge of me. We don't use the term much anymore today, but through most of history, people would talk about ladies and lords. They're rulers, those who had authority over them. And Jesus invites us to do the same. So many of us, I think, are guilty of seeing Jesus as an equal, as a brother in Christ, certainly a big brother, certainly a stronger brother, certainly a brother who might be in with dad a little bit more, but just like me, all the same. And maybe to some degree that's true, but if we miss this aspect that Jesus is an authority over us, we are missing the essence of who he is and the relationship he's inviting us into. It is foundational to call Jesus your savior, but if you stop there, you have missed the confession of Christian for 2,000 years. Jesus invites us to put him first in our life. He invites us to say, your way before my way. Your will before my will. Your dreams before my dreams. Your hope before my hope. Your life before my life. Your plans before my plans. I will bow my knee before you and acknowledge that you are above me. This is what it means to make Jesus Lord of your life to say you are first and for me you define everything 
but it doesn't stop there. Because to confess Jesus is Lord, to say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, is also to say this, you're Yahweh himself. A little bit of trivia. In the Old Testament, the most common word that you will find in the Hebrew vocabulary that makes and constitutes what the Old Testament is, the most common word you will find is Yahweh. More than is. More than that. More than the. It's mind-blowing if you think about it. And there's reasons for that in the Hebrew language. The name Yahweh constitutes 4% of the entire Old Testament's vocabulary. How many words do you think are in the Old Testament? 11,642. You are so low. So terribly low. Oh my gosh, embarrassingly low. (laughs) But we'll pray for you, brother. It's staggering to behold, isn't it? I mean, where do we even go with that number? And to think that one out of 26 of every single one of those words is Yahweh. And let I challenge you, open up your Hebrew Bible or open up your English Bible, the Old Testament. And I dare you to try to find the name. It's because it's washed out. It's an ancient tradition that goes back to the Pharisees to take God's name and, and, and hold it in such reverence and holiness, to never risk taking it in vain, well, they wouldn't take it at all. And so every time in the Bible they came across the word Yahweh, they would substitute the word Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Look for that in your English Bibles and you'll find it all over the place. So if I was to start Psalm 23, I bet you would say, and you would be wrong. Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. And when you know what that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D is doing, Yahweh's name is everywhere. So to confess Jesus is Lord is nothing short than to say Jesus is Yahweh. You are not just the master of my life. You are not just first in my life. You are not just in charge of me. You are God himself. Are you with me? But it doesn't stop there. Because when Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, he wrote it to people who were under the lordship of the Roman Empire. Now, at some level, the Roman Empire didn't care what you believed. They didn't care what temple you went to. They didn't care how you practiced your religion privately in your home. What they did care about is that they got first allegiance. And so the common prayer, the common practice, the common civic duty in the Roman Empire of the day was to say this, Caesar is Lord, do you see what Paul is doing? To say Jesus is Lord is to say Caesar is not. 
Because what this confession is, to call Jesus Lord, what it's all about is allegiance. And who you choose to give your allegiance to. There are many things in this world that will compete to be first in your life. Many will coerce, many will threat, many will seek to seduce and win over. But when we confess Jesus is Lord, what we are saying is our allegiance is to you first and foremost of all. Many people will talk about faith in Christ, and they'll talk about it in such a way as though what it means is to say that I believe that Jesus exists, and I believe that Jesus is who he says he is, but that is not biblical faith, because biblical faith is more about the word fidelity. Semper Fi, if I can quote the Marines. When they say Semper Fidelis or Semper Fi, are they saying, I believe the U.S. Marines exist? That would be silly. No, it says, first and foremost, I give my allegiance to the U.S. Marines. I am in, through thick and thin, my life, my blood, my pride finds its anchor in you. To say Jesus is Lord is to say you are first and foremost above all things, and I put my allegiance with you. No matter the cost, no matter the threat, no matter the seduction, no matter the want, I pledge you my life. I give you my soul. You are who I ally myself with. I believe in Jesus, the Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. This is what it means. This is what it invites. This is what it challenges us to. And I tell you, it's good news. Because Jesus is not some tyrant king. He is not some self-serving Lord. He is not some special privileged son. He is one who gives his life for you. He's a Lord who comes to serve He's a Lord who comes to sacrifice. He is a Lord who loves you and makes a way for you to be in the family of God, treated as sons and daughters of him. And so it comes boiling out in all kinds of ways Christians proclaiming King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I think of that song we sang last Sunday, that he will reign forevermore. What's that refrain? King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Lord of all, or maybe the classic we sang today. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. So let your heart prepare him room because Jesus is the Christ, God's Son, our Lord. And I tell you this, heaven and nature sing. Did you catch that? Heaven and nature sing. Did you catch it that time? Heaven. Heaven. And nature sing.
So I invite you to rise. And I invite you to share in that confession, proclamation, and pledge of allegiance of faith with me. In the words of the Nicene Creed, may Jesus be your Lord. And may you commit your life to him as Lord today.